Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The Weather Channel has been around for over 30 years and has seen the evolution in both television and digital space over multiple decades. My guest today was an integral part of the Weather Channel's growth for nearly 27 of those 37 years. Ray-Ban was the Weather Channel's Executive Vice President of Programming and Meteorology and is now a consultant for the company. He also teaches a broadcasting class at his alma mater, Penn State University. After so many years in the weather communication industry, Ray has a great deal of experience and wisdom to pass down to the next generation of meteorologists that you may be watching on TV someday. Ray, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Marshall, it's a pleasure to be here. It's really awesome to have you here because I, even as we were talking about this show, I, some of the younger folks here, I don't think they realize just your history with the Weather Channel. So first of all, before we go down that road and talk about all the cool things we're going to talk about today, tell us a little bit more about how you just got interested in the weather part of the world. Wow. Okay. So we have to go back. Yeah. Like most folks, um, you know, I guess I was um, infected with the weather bug at a fairly early age. And, you know, it, it started, I think, Marshall, just I was outside a lot. Um, growing up, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and uh, you know, spent a lot of time outside, you know, playing little league baseball, just hanging around with friends, spinning outside. And I started to just really become fascinated with the weather. And just as, you know, a young kid began listening to television weathercast, would listen to the radio weathercast during the day, just, well, first of all, I wanted to know what the weather was going to do because I was going to be outside a whole lot. Sure. But then I just started getting even more interested in it. And I found myself always planning my day around catching the weather cast and understanding what the weather was going to do. And then when the winter came, you know, just um, loved snow and just waited by the window watching the snow come down in the street. Yeah, so, you were for, so but there, was there any particular weather event that you think about over your childhood, for example, that really sticks out or it was just the more general snow days, et cetera? I guess it was more general, uh, although there was, you know, this, this sounds like I'm making this story up, but I'm, I'm not. This is a true story. So I was coming home from a, um, a baseball, a little league baseball game, and I was on my bicycle. And I was, um, I, I was coming down a hill. I was, you know, it was a suburb of Pittsburgh, Crafton, Pennsylvania. And I was coming down, um, it, it was a brick street because back, you know, the, the, the streets were paved with, I wouldn't call them cobblestones, but they were bricks. And I was on my bike and it was, and it was thunderstorming and the game had gotten called. My parents weren't able to come and get me. I had my bike. So I figured, what the heck, I'll drive and, you know, drive my bike home. So I'm coming down this hill. And as I'm coming down the hill, about, I'm going to say, I don't know, 25 or 30 yards in front of me, I actually saw a lightning bolt oh, wow. hit the brick road. Wow. And I, I you know, I, I skidded to a stop on my bike and kind of, you know, skidded out and the bike went down. I went down. But I remember when I got up, you know, realized I was okay. 
wet because it was raining hard, there was steam coming off of the street about 20 yards ahead oh, where wow. that lightning bolt had hit. Now, that had nothing to do with my choice to become a meteorologist, right. but it was an interesting story. And once again, it just tended to build more on my curiosity and fascination with the weather. So, right. yeah. Yeah, I no, I, I think, I mean, it's, it's interesting because you, you're very much involved with AMS, and I think many people uh, have a similar story about their childhood or their interest at that point. Now, I mentioned in the introduction that you were the executive vice president of programming and meteorology for 27 years or so here at the Weather Channel and, and many other roles, I sh- I'm sure. But before that Weather Channel stop in your career, what were you doing just before that? Well, just before that, I was working at AccuWeather up in State College, Pennsylvania. Yeah, so you've been around the, both of the, some of the major institutions. Well, yeah. So mm-hmm. I um, so I, I graduated with my bachelor's degree in meteorology from Penn State in 1973. And uh, after I graduated, I started working at AccuWeather. And um, so I spent uh, almost 10 years there because I left there in early 1982 when we came to Atlanta to get ready to launch the Weather Channel. Now, now this is something even I want to understand because I'm very familiar with your career, your trajectory, but you were a part of the original group is, uh, with the Weather Channel, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, if you listen to anything the Weather Channel puts out or you watch the Weather Channel, the man sitting right across from me is one of the reasons that it was able to stand up and become what it is today. Just talk about those early days. I mean, what, what was going on? What was the idea like? How did this come about? Well, okay, so um, you know, it's it's it, it, it's a story. Um, we 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 assembled here on March the first of 1982, and the network launched on May the second of 1982. Um, and I was an on-camera meteorologist. Um, so the, the you know the concept of the Weather Channel, as as I think you know and a lot of folks know, um, was. Um, from John Coleman, who was the meteorologist on Good Morning America at that time. And so, you know, um, I, I first heard from John probably back in the summer of 1981. Um, I first met John at an AMS um, broadcast conference in Boston sometime around 19, I think it was 1980, 1979, 1980. And uh, anyway, so out of the blue, I got a call from him one day and he said, hey, we're going to start a 24-hour weather network on cable television. And, um, you know, he you know, extended an offer, like said, I want you to come down and be a part of it. Um, so, um, so, yeah, you know, my wife and I, we had just had our first child at the time. And so we took the plunge. We came down to Atlanta. Um, and I could just tell you, it was an exciting time. I mean, to to try and capture all of the frenzy leading up to the launch of a cable television network would be impossible for me to describe. Um, But, you know, in addition to just having the, the, the personnel come, the people come, you know, studios were being built, technology was being put in place. You know, we, um, we had technology to localize the forecast. Uh, We call that the weather star satellite transponder addressable receiver. So that technology was coming um, coming along. It hadn't been finalized yet. You know, we were, I think, the third or fourth cable television network to launch. This was early 82. This the, is really early. It's oh, nothing like the 300, 800 channels now. A few channels, nothing right? Nothing like that. Yeah. I, so, I mean, CNN had launched. I think the New England News Channel had launched. Um, there may have been not one other one. But so we were the third or the fourth. Wow 
cable TV network. So it was a young industry. Um, there was, you know, it was kind of running and gunning. There was, I mean, it was just a blast. And as we got closer and closer to the launch date of May 2nd, you know, the frenzy just kind of increased and the excitement and the, um, the anticipation just grew. So it was cool. I, I, you know, I had a blast. And the job description of a startup is, you know, whatever needs done. So in addition to practicing and, and getting used to the studio for presenting the weather, I was working, you know, helping out with some of the production, working in master control, doing a little bit of um, writing of some of some marketing material. So it, um, you know, it was just a fun time. Yeah. No, I, and I was going to ask you, uh, in addition to sort of all hands on deck, which I'm sure it was, I mean, as the executive vice president of programming and meteorology, um, I mean, does that mean you're calling the shots editorially and meteorologically? I mean, what, what does the day-to-day involve in that role that well, you had? Okay, not, not, not back then, okay? Right. So, you know, if, if we're, you know, chronologically, so I started, I was just on the air. Sure. I was, you know, a, a broadcast meteorologist and having a blast doing that. And it wasn't, uh, you know, until later in my career that I took on the responsibility for the programming and the, and the operations. So it... Um, it, it was it, it was a blast. My whole career was a blast. I got to you know participate you know, in international business development. We launched networks in Latin America, in the United Kingdom, in Germany. I got to you know see parts of the world. Met with international meteorological services. Um, yeah, it was just, you know, I was, I was extremely blessed. I was at the right place at the right time. And it was, you know, it was a young industry, so there was opportunity. So, um, yeah, but when um, uh, we got to 2008 and our owner company Landmark you know, made the decision that we were going to divest the Weather Channel, um, you know, that's when I really had the responsibility for um, all of our programming. And it was um, at that time, you know, we had come a long, long way since 1982. um, And, you know, we were doing long form programming. We were, um, you know, doing our real time weather shows. So um, there were, you know, there there were a few moving parts. But, you know, once again, having grown up with the company for, you know, almost 30 years, it, you know, it was something that at that point was a part of my DNA. Now, yeah, I I just saw something recently where for the, whatever many years in a row, I don't know exactly what the number was, the Weather Channel was voted sort of the top sort of brand in in cable or network television. I can't remember. I think it was cable television. Um, What do you think, in sort of looking back over the uh, Weather Channel, what do you think has led to its sort of longevity and success as as a network? Well, well, um, you know, I I think when, when I think back, what you know? What, what were some of the critical success factors? I would have to say number one was the people. Um, you know, right from the very beginning, we were blessed with uh, you know some just some great people. Uh, Landmark, uh, the company that owned us, um, the senior leadership at Landmark, um, just some fabulous folks. Frank Batten, senior, who was running the company, W. Wynn, who was the president of the company. Um, were very hands-on in, in helping us understand and grow in the media industry. Um, we were fortunate because I think we moved into a niche and we occupied it. So, um, you know, John Coleman having the vision to understand and see that there was a market for 24 by 7 weather and that it would be consumed. Um, those, I think, you know, th- those 
all of the factors that, that, that sort of came together, the people, the passion, um, right place at the right time, first in occupying the niche, not screwing it up too bad, um, you know, all those things I think came in the right mixture to really build a brand that, you know, in, 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 in all honesty, I think, um, you know, blew us all away. Um, you know, when, you know, the Weather Channel began to really roll and the brand really became a, you know, a household uh, phrase, we would all just, I think, you know, think about about that in awe and say, wow, okay, let's just not mess it up. It's rolling. Um, and, and let's just let it continue to roll. Uh, right. And, you know, uh, talking with Ray Ban, who is a, a longtime member of the weather community and one of the pioneers of the Weather Channel and also very much involved in uh, aspects of private weather uh, activities today and also is still a consultant to the, uh, to the network and others. I'm going to get Ray's thoughts a bit later in the podcast on the evolution of the broadcast weather industry and just the weather enterprise in general. But I, I want to stay here for a moment with his time at the Weather Tan Channel. Um, what was your uh, any particular times here at the Weather Channel in your role as a broadcaster, as an executive, where there was just some event, something you were covering, something that was going on that just really sticks out for you as, uh, wow, that was a game changer in how we covered that, or I really remember that moment any any storms moments events that kind of stick out marshall there were a lot of them yeah I bet, I bet. <laughs> you know and i'm trying to think back um you know the, the memory begins to fade <laughs> but um you know in so yeah you know, we launched in 82 and i think you know there's there's a fairly i think well-known story that it, you know the initial days were tough um you know the first year um we were struggling financially the um advertising um community was still having a hard time. Uh, what is this? Yeah. yeah, wrapping their arms around cable in general, right? Because you know we had the traditional broadcast networks, right. and now there was this new beast, this 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 cable industry. Okay, so you know, um, so we began measured by A. C. Nielsen Company, and um, you know the, the the metrics started to come. And in the early days, they weren't very impressive. Um, you know, we launched in May of '82, and our viewership. Um, for that first 12-month period was, um, was struggling. So um, I think, you know, from, from a turning point perspective, and, and this is the event, so, you know, um, after about a year, so we're talking now about April, May of 1983, um, some, some tough decisions were made. Um, you know, Landmark and John Coleman um, parted company and there was a change of leadership here in Atlanta. Uh, we, we, we were at that point 100% dependent on ad, uh, an ad revenue. Now, um, so the president of Landmark at the time, W. Wynn, so W. Um, in the summer of 83, made a, um, a circuit of the cable distribution companies at that time, you know, um, Landmark owned Telecable, um, TCI was another big cable distributor. And essentially what he did was he said that if the cable industry is going to grow, we need to support programmers. And the, um, the cable companies stepped up and began paying distribution or subscriber fees. And 
if it wasn't for that, I think it was pretty clear that we were not going to make it. So that event really stands out because it created the financial wherewithal for us to continue to, to do what we do. And the, the growth then after that started off slow, 83, 84 was, um, you know, we were still building our audience. But then around 1985, 86, things started to turn. The snowball started to grow. The, uh, you know, the, the, the brand began to get some traction. We started to build our viewership. Um, and then the, the, the loyal viewers stuck with us. That loyal viewership grew and... So I would say that in that 1983 to 86 era, it wasn't a weather event so much as it was as an industry event that kept us, kept us up and walking. And then we, you know, we, we, we grew and be able to run. It was, I think, in the mid-80s, mid to late 80s, we um, did our first remote coverage of, uh, of a landfalling hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico. I'm struggling to remember the name right now. Um, so that was that was a uh, a big step forward, uh, and then the the launch of Weather.com in um, in the '90s also a major event for us that gave us the uh, opportunity to now use the digital environment to reach the audience that we wanted to need that we wanted to to reach that we needed to reach, and. Then utilizing the internet site and the video network to complement one another. And then we had the advent of, of our um, smartphones. And then now how do, we, how do we move our audience from the TV network to the internet site to the cell phone? Understanding what viewers want. I you know, spent hours and hours at focus groups listening to people talk to us. Um, Understanding what your customer wants is critical. And one of the things I think I learned and I, and I try to talk about to the students at Penn State today is, you know, you come into this field with an intense passion and love for the weather and you talk about it and you, 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 you um, think that you know what folks want. And it's an, always an insightful experience when you actually go out and you talk to your customers and you ask them what they want, or you show them examples of what you're doing, and they say, "No, that's really that that really stinks. We don't want that." Um, and I have focus group stories. You know, I mean, I, I you know, um, we had a focus group one time. It was in Tampa, Florida. This is an interesting story, and this focus group was consisted of people who watched the Weather Channel for whatever reason, but claim they didn't like it, okay? <laughs> so now, you know, logically you say, well, why are you watching if you don't like it? Right. And there was this one gentleman who stood up at this focus group, and this, this I'll never forget this. He said, watching the Weather Channel to me is like going to the dentist. I hate it, <laughs> but I need it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so, so there, and then, you know, we would show graphics and you, you, you begin to understand that people don't relate to radar images and satellite images the way we do. And you begin to really get a sense of 
what you really have to talk about in order to connect with even what we would think as, as atmospheric scientists as some of the you know, most fundamental concepts. And it's not that the audience is not intelligent. They're all very intelligent. It's just not, this is not the world it's they live in. It's not their thing. Like yeah, right, they don't exactly. breathe and live it like we do. So, um, so understanding the, 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 cons- the, the customer. And I teach my students at Penn State today that you know, quality, which is an interesting concept, but quality exists only to the extent that the product or the service meets the perceived need of the customer. Um, you know, we could we can measure our accuracy, we can measure our audience, but you know what? If we're not meeting the need, there is no quality. And so that took that that that, that was an evolution. We all have to sort of wrap our brains around customer-driven quality and begin to adjust our programming and our delivery in a way uh, that that resonated with the audience, with this intelligent group of people um, that wanted information and that were, were, were excited about the information, but we just had to really put it on a, you know, on a platform and on a level that, that, that connected with that audience. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm talking with Ray Ban, a former Weather Channel executive and also someone that's just very well known in the weather community. I want to shift now to your discussion about the broadcast meteorology world. You said you, you, you teach a course at Penn State. You see the changes that are going on in the broadcast landscape. First of all, give me your assessment of broadcast meteorology today, how it differs from when you started and where it's going. Wow. Okay. Well, uh, just 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 to make sure I clarify. So, you know, my role at Penn State is I help, I you know, I help teach a course sure. on weather communication. So to call it my course. Well, sure. No, you're, you're, you're involved you know, in the process. Yeah. Right. Um, so I want to make sure that you know because um, you know the people at Penn State are are, are you know they're they're full time dedicated professionals. Uh, oh, absolutely. And I just sort of come in and you know absolutely. Yeah. You know, well, as someone at a university, we use experts <laughs> like you to um, to to give us credibility in some regards. And I know that that's one of the things you bring to the table to whoever um, is uh, involved in that course. So, but you have a one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you on the Weather Geeks podcast. And I think you just have a unique lens uh, for broadcast and the private sector in general as someone that, you know, we've been colleagues for a while and worked together. So you see how this this world has changed. I mean, even at, at the University of Georgia, we tell our students, look, it's not just the world of standing in front of a green screen anymore. It's far more than that. So just give us your lay of the land. Well, you know, so, uh, all right, so I grew up, you know, um, so I started my career in the early 70s. And that time, so broadcast meteorology at that time was um, was 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 compared to today, you know, limited. Um, you know, outlets for weather at that time, you know, there were no smartphones, there was no internet. Um, you know, the broadcast networks, local news was doing weather at the six and eleven p.m. newscast for a couple or three minutes. Uh, you know, it was it was it was very contained. Some stations did it on the weekend, some didn't. So. You know, to get weather information on television at that time, you really had to, you know, you, you had to have an appointment. If you didn't, you know, come at the right time, you didn't get it. So, um, so you know, at that point in time, the, the broadcast industry was also growing. So, you know, it was very glamorous. You got on TV in the 70s. There was, um, you know, you were a star. The, you know, the compensation was fairly attractive. You could make a very, very comfortable 
career in in broadcast meteorology. And I think well, and and I think the you know the advent of the Weather Channel started to change because you know one, once again we took weather from being that appointment at the six and eleven o'clock newscast into a twenty four by seven environment, um, and then you know. Um, the the big change, obviously, well, there's been a couple of big changes. The you know the the the, the, the internet and the um, ability to go straight from content uh, producer right to the consumer um, on the World Wide Web really began what I think is the biggest change. And then social media today, you know, continues that that trend. So. You know, the media industry has changed quite a bit. And as the media industry changes, broadcast weather, broadcast meteorology, um, as a part of that broad media industry has to change along with it, right? Because, you know, we're just, you know, in, in some respects, we are just, you know, passengers on that, on, on that bus. Um, so where the bus goes, we're going to have to go. And then we're going to have to adapt to it along the way. So, you know... Um, in, in many ways, I am glad that I today am, you know, not competing um, in 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 the industry because um, it was easier back in the seventies, <laughs> right. uh, you know. And I, you know, and I'm not as smart as some of the, you know, the folks coming out of school today to do it. But to understand now all of the dimensions to reach the customer. You know, you, you have, you know, just not the audio and the video. Now you have the, you know, the visuals we've always had, but now you can do it. Social media, you can Twitter 24-7, you can, you know, LinkedIn 24-7, you can Instagram. Um, and in addition to your, you know, your formal presentations today, now you have all these informal social networks that you have to be, be engaged in and be a part of because that's the competitive landscape. But, Ray, let me ask you something about this, because I wrote something in Forbes a, a, a few years ago, I think, because I was seeing a trend across the landscape, and even among some of my former students, where they were going into broadcast meteorology, actually having success, but leaving the field because they felt they were having to do so much. And not only did they have to do their on-air responsibilities. They had to tweet. They had to do a Facebook Live when there was a severe weather event. And they felt that it was just becoming a bit too much. So on the one hand, there's sort of this positive aspect. We've got more ways to reach people. But from the young broadcast meteorologists, which you see in your class, how do how do we prepare them for the reality that it's not just them walking in, looking at their forecast, and telling the folks in, uh, on TV? I mean, I, I saw that as a challenge. Have you experienced that? Or what are your thoughts on this multidimensional approach of a broadcast meteorologist now. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that you know, all you said is true. And, you know, you know, just flipping back to the 70s for a moment, you know, um, a typical broadcast meteorologist at a, you know, at a, at a um, relatively successful TV market, you know, would do the 6 and 11 o'clock news, right? Come in, you know, maybe 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, prepare for the 6 o'clock weather program, deliver it, go home, have dinner, come back around 10 o'clock, update the forecast, get on the air, go home, Right. That end of day. And as you said, now in between, you just can't do that anymore. You know, it, it's probably a 12-hour workday. It involves um, you as a, as, as a talent now, you know, expanding and having to deal with, you know, with, with, with dimensions now of your personality and your networking that, you know, that you didn't have to do in the industry back then. So it definitely has changed. And it's not for everybody. I think that is the key. You know, if if the 
the passion and the enthusiasm is there. It's even with all of the work, you know, you're still having fun. And when you're having fun, it's not work, right? Fun is, is a great enabler. So for those for those for the breed of of, of individuals who, who 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 can exist within that, I think it's 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 a tremendous opportunity because the you know because it's not for everybody, and I think that you know folks have to recognize young folks coming out of school today if they're going to get into this industry, they have to understand everything you said that that it entails, and they have to embrace it, and they have to love it, and they have to have fun doing it. And if it's not there, well, then okay, there's no there there's there's no disdain in that. There's no, you know, there's there, there there's no embarrassment in that. You just you know, okay, that's not for me, so I'll move on to something else. And the neat thing is, in our science today, there's a ton of opportunity, right? You don't have to be in front of a camera, in front of a microphone, or tweeting on your you know on your um, on your device. Uh, and and I think the neat thing is is that you know programs today, university programs today are preparing students for careers that are you know analytical. We you know we we teach our students to, to you know to understand data, to be able to analyze data, and that skill and competency has value. And I, my hope would be that um, there's always going to be an opportunity for students who come out of programs today. Um, and 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 are looking for how they're going to build and make their careers, um, and I, I'm going to ramble here for just a little bit because I you know I hear a lot about you know we're turning out too many meteorologists and there's not enough there's not enough jobs to support them. Well, you know I is the job market competitive? Yes. You know, do you have to differentiate yourself in order to be successful? Yes. But I don't think that has changed a whole lot. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think you know it's 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 different for sure, but it 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 it's still I think you know when you think about weather you know I think about media and weather okay you know cavemen started talking about weather they would you know bang it on their walls right the you know the printing press came weather was a part of it newspapers had weather radio had weather television had weather the internet had weather cell phones have weather you know uh you know all the social networks have weather weather has been a part of the media industry from its very beginning and it's been a critical content element within the media industry since its very beginning and i don't see that changing i, I agree you know, it's always going to. Be- well, what about what about the human? So, so I just before we taped this podcast, I was on AMHQ, the morning show here at the Weather Channel with Stephanie and uh, and Jim and and Jen, and we were talking about a severe weather threat the next several days. And there are some that say, "Well, I, I you know, I you know, I think about the Masters recently, and people are really upset because people were inter- interrupting the Masters golf tournament to deliver a tornado threat in those markets." And some people were saying, well, I can just pull up my app or my app will alert me or warn me. But there are also studies that suggest that people in those situations want to hear from a trusted voice. So what is your perspective on the value of a human in the process still? Oh, I think the value of a human is an absolute critical part of the process. Um, I don't think not, in, in my from my point of view, nothing has changed there. I, I think we all in terms of how we absorb and process information are, are, are enabled to a greater extent when that, that interaction is coming from another human being. So, um, you know, I don't see the human leaving the loop anytime soon or maybe ever um, because the, 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 
the empathy, the um, engagement, the ability to reach out and, and, and create the connection in the communication that is required, particularly in times of, you know, of severe weather when we have to take action. I don't think anything will, you know, will, will rise to the level of effectiveness as is one-on-one human communication in that particular environment. So I think there's always going to be a role for the human. It's going to continue to evolve and change. But at the end of the day, when you are in a situation where you are threatened, having a calm, reassuring, knowledgeable voice to talk to you and say to you, okay, yeah, okay, things are pretty, pretty nasty right now, but here's what you need to do. Here's how you can, you, you, you can be successful in, 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 in weathering, uh, no pun intended, this particular event. And I don't think anything is going to match the level of effectiveness as that, as, as that calm, reassuring, knowledgeable voice talking to you about the situation, understanding it. It's, it's, you know, Fear is just as fun as an enabler. Fear is a disabler. So we have to remove fear. And how do you remove fear? By having somebody, you know, somebody tell you, okay, you know, here's how you understand it. There's nothing to be afraid of here. We can get through this. We will get through this right. because we understand this. And, you know, it's a phenomenon that I have studied all my life. And I'm going to tell you now how you're going to be successful in making it through this particular event. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast for our last segment. I'm talking with Ray Band, and I want to pivot now the discussion a little bit into sort of another world that I know you've been involved with um, uh, in the sort of more recent part of your career. That's the sort of public-private partnership or engagement within the weather community. We have the situation where we have private companies that have their own weather models now. We have private companies that can provide weather satellite information. We have the new Weather uh, Forecast and Improvement Act that was signed into law that is encouraging more in private engagement. Give us sort of your take on sort of the role of the private sector in the broader weather industry now, not just broadcast, because it hasn't always been a harmonious relationship. Well, that's for sure. Um, and, you know, and, and during my career, I sort of lived all of the dysfunction when it wasn't a harmonious relationship. Um, but, you know, I, I think, Marshall, it, it, it comes to the fact that the demand that our country has, our nation has from our, um, from our community, the world has from our community, right? That demand is only increasing. We know that. Okay, we're facing, you know, we're facing environmental challenges, um, that um, you know really are going to require significant amount of, of, of resources to address. So the world the world needs us more than it ever has. Absolutely. So how are we going to meet? How are we going to meet the demand? Um, you know, I think that you know the the traditional you know we the people's weather service, our you know our national weather service, our national oceanic and atmospheric administration, all of the federal and state and local agencies that deal with it have done a marvelous job. Um, but as we all know, you know, the money truck isn't backing up to the loading dock anymore and dumping, right? Um, you know, w- you know, our budgets are constrained and they will continue to be constrained. So how do we as a broad community meet the demand? My, you know, somewhat 
naive or maybe, you know, simplistic look at it is, okay, so, you know, we have to find effectiveness in our broader community. We have to say, okay, um, who's going to, how can, how can we structure this strategically? Who's going to do what? Okay. Now we all have traditional roles. Um, you know, the academic community has, you know, has, has its traditional role of research and education, private sector customization and tailoring, you know, the, um, the government sector, the public sector, um, you know, massive data um, systems, satellites, radars, numerical weather prediction, research. Um, how can we now think about the future in a way that says, if we stick to the traditional roles and we everybody stays in their silos, the inefficiencies that have have, have grown and developed over the years are still going to be there and they'll continue to grow. So, you know, my view on this, and I know a lot of people have heard me say this and a lot of people, you know, probably roll their eyes. Here comes Ban again talking <laughs> about this. We have to strategically plan the enterprise, okay? We have to take a look. We have to bring together the right group of people to say, okay, here's where we're at right now. It's like any strategic plan, right? What's our vision? And I say a great vision is already there. We're a, rather, a weather-ready nation that, you know, that Louis Uccellini put out there, you know, a few years ago, you know, and, and, and you know, we are going to be a resilient, weather-ready nation. I think that's a fabulous vision. We all want to get there. And I think everybody in the enterprise signs up to that. Sure. Okay, so if that's the vision, and that's our North Star. Okay, how are we going to get there? And then we have to look at what's changed. Okay, so budgets have changed. We have you know, political issues. We have technological issues. We have environmental issues. It's, it's a strat plan process where we have to say, okay, where, where does it make the most sense for who to do what? You know, can the public sector do everything that it has been doing? Or do we have to focus the dollars that we have in that area on those, on, on those programs and on those initiatives that return the greatest amount to the enterprise. Okay. And if we're going to do that, that means maybe some of the traditional roles that the government has been doing are, are, are going to have to be handed off to somebody else. Okay. And maybe that's the private sector. Maybe it's the academic sector. But how can we find a way so that as we move forward, we are optimizing our efficiency and our efficacy in a way that we're, you know, we're never actually going to totally eliminate waste, but can we minimize it to the point where we are we are intelligently allocating resources all towards that goal of a weather-ready nation of total resiliency and that the demand that is increasing now and will only continue to increase can actually be met without having to think about how we're going to get the money truck to back up and dump on our loading. Though. And I think that we had, we had Neil Jacobs on an episode of the podcast recently we talked to him and it hasn't aired yet and we were he was talking about epic and how it's a sort of community modeling approach where it's leveraging resources of all involved and you know and and um i think that you know you know and i understand you know that that was neil's vision um you know neil coming out of you know out of the private sector understood those opportunities and i think epic is a fabulous program right because i think it is it's, it's saying okay you know we you know um, if you do what you're doing, you're going to keep getting what you're getting. And I don't think we as a broad community right now can, can um, you know, deal with, you know, continuing to get what we're getting. We have to change, right? And so I think Epic is just one example of some of the things we need to do. But I continue to advocate. And I don't care how we get to that process, whether it's a, you know, it's a National Academy study like a decadal survey like, you know, the space community does, or if we do something different – 
all I contend is that if we can get the right group of people around the table and we check the guns at the door, so, you know, we got to, you know, any, any of the petty jealousies and turf protection, you know, and you know, it's, easy, it's easy for me to say this right now because, you know, I'm, I'm you know, on the, the you know, the sort of the, uh, the, the flip side of my career, right? So, um yeah. yeah, but you're but you're 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 plugged in, and I mean, I, and I mean, you 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 consult to a lot of groups, you, Weather Channel, perhaps other private uh, sector. I, I know that you're involved in the American Meteorological Society. In fact, you're one of the leads. Uh, I think that you're the program chair for the upcoming 100th anniversary meeting of the American Meteorological Society. <laughs> yeah. So you still have your fingerprint and DNA on this community, and and, and know it well. Uh, so I mean, as we draw to a close, I wanted to get your perspective on the importance of the AMS 100th anniversary meeting, which you're essentially planning in, in concert with uh, President Jenny Evans uh, and, and a committee, and also your view as a, a as someone as a consultant in this industry. So those two different issues as we wrap up. Well, you know, I mean, I, I think you know the AMS um, has 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 been a tremendous cohesive uh, element in our community, and it continues to be. But just like you know, we were talking about how we as an enterprise have to change. The AMS has to, uh, you know. Uh, you know, the trajectory that took the AMS through its first hundred years to today is not going to be the trajectory Absolutely. that takes us through the next hundred years. Absolutely, I agree with that. Completely. So we have to we have to wrap our our arms around all of that. We have diversity, we have inclusiveness, we have to deal with. We have an international uh, you know environment now, not so much a national anymore. Weather doesn't have boundaries. You know, I mean, you know, it all starts at the sun, right? Ninety three million miles away, and so you know, we can't pretend that weather is in the United States. Um, so you know, the AMS has to grasp. The you know the, the 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 next century differently than 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 we did in the first century, and there's tremendous opportunity. Um, we just have to position ourselves to to, to 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 be able to take advantage of it, and um, I think the the AMS has to continue to produce value to its members. We have to relate to our members not only on a on an intellectual level but also on an emotional level. We have to connect you know in a way that. That, that, that excites the passion, that drives the enthusiasm, that creates one plus one equaling something greater than two. Um, and those are going to be the challenges the AMS is going to be facing. Um, I, I, I agree. And I think the 100th anniversary meeting in Boston, what what are the dates on that? Again? So oh, I can't remember the exact dates, but it's in January second, 2020. Second week. I think we start the second week. We're a little bit later this year right. than, you know, but I think we start the second week of January exactly. 2020. That, that sounds about right to me. And yeah. I'm going to shamelessly, you know, shamelessly plug that, you know, we're, we here. Um, the committee we have that Jenny has assembled is fantastic. We have some wonderful people, you included. <laughs> I'm on, happy to be involved. on that committee, and um, I am excited about what our um, our 2020 annual meeting is going to be. And I think it's going to be a, an experience and fun. And I would encourage everybody who's listening to this podcast and who is a member of the community, or if you're not, come to Boston and help us celebrate. And, and let's hope that it doesn't snow us out up there. <laughs> we, 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 we're meteorologists. We know the climatology of Boston, but it's a Boston holds special significance to the AMS, which is why the meeting is being held there. Last question, Ray. I mean, you're a consultant. We have a lot of younger people that listen to this podcast. What does it mean to be a consultant in a capacity with an organization like a Weather Channel or a Penn State or a NOAA? Just talk to us kind of, I, I want people to understand it because you mentioned this earlier. There are a lot of things that you can use your skill sets to do in this field. Talk to us about what a consultant like you does. Well, you know, um, Marshall, what I what I do is I just try to to bring and leverage the experience and the um, and, and and the understanding that I have gained through you know uh, almost now approaching fifty years of my career, 
and 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 to and, and to give um, whether it's students or leaders of organizations. Um, the benefit of some of the insight that I have gained. And, you know, the interesting thing about being a consultant is, um, you know, nobody has to listen to you, right? <laughs> um, you know, I mean, people, you know, will, will pay me to give my insight and, and, and thoughts on, on it. But at the end of the day, you know, the leaders of an organization are the ones that are going to have to decide what they're going to take from me or any other, you know, outside um, source and how they're going to incorporate that into their decision processes. So, um, you know, it's, um, it's something that I, I particularly enjoy because I think I do, you know, I learned a lot in my career. And one of the things I try to do when I'm, when I'm lecturing at Penn State is to provide students with some of the, the, the understanding and the learnings that I have gained that I wish somebody would have at least talked to me about when I was an undergrad, right. you know, and not to go a mile deep, but just to say, okay, you know, if you go into the media industry, you're going to have to understand the dynamics of the industry. How does the industry monetize? What is audience research? What are ratings? How do they play? Um, understanding a little bit about marketing, understanding a little bit about branding, um, understanding how you as a broadcast meteorologist in Podunk are a part of a massive weather and climate enterprise, weather, water, and climate enterprise. And to try and, and, and navigate through your day-to-day career and, and try to deny that you're a part of this bigger and broader dynamic, you're just fooling yourself. And I think you're going to be limiting your success if you don't embrace and grasp how you fit into this broader picture and how important you are in, in, in this broader, you know, weather resiliency and weather-ready nation that we're, we're, we're creating. And we are creating it. We're not trying to create it. We are. Oh, it's, it's here. Yeah. We're creating it. And, um, and I think we all have, you know, have, have some, 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 some pride to take in that. So, um, you, know, uh, you know, my career, I've been truly blessed, as I, as I say. I've, I've never gotten up any day in my career and say, boy, does this stink. This yeah. sucks. i got to get out of this. I think that's right. I think all meteorologists or people in this field have that story. Where, where is, is the, because I know you're still active. Is there a place if some, some business or someone's listening said, man, I really would like that guy to come talk to my organization? I mean, is there a way people can reach you or find sure. you? Or? Yeah. Just, uh, you know, I'm on LinkedIn, Bannon and associates um you know yeah um you know there's um yeah i'm out there um uh, now I, I i must tell you that you know as the years have gone on now you know i'm 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 not maybe as as, as 100 active as i was say five or ten years sure. ago but i still love this community i still love engaging with folks in this community um i'm not going to be able to help um or provide insight to many many people but some people i will so um yeah if anybody's listening and wants to have a conversation i'm always open to doing that that is where we have to end it today. This has been a great conversation. I knew it would be uh, when the producers were asking me about this. Uh, they were like, what what kind of things do, you, do we need to know? So I was like, oh, Ray and I know each other. We can probably talk for an hour without any notes. And we've essentially done that. Although uh, uh, to the producers, I did I did stick to a few of the things on the on the page. But thank you all for listening to the Weather Geeks podcast. Uh, Ray, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Marshall. I am Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And this has been the Weather Geeks podcast. Be sure to just uh, subscribe on iTunes. Uh, Stitcher, your favorite podcast outlet, or on weloveweather.tv. See you next time on the Weather Geeks Podcast.